Magnifa. Welcome to the Magnifa Hour. I'm here. I'm really excited because today we have Heather Matthews. We're talking documentaries, uh, more queer culture stuff, which is really exciting for me, um, and how you get your start in documentary. So stay tuned. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. Hello and welcome to the Night Hour. I'm Joelle. And I'm Pega. And we're super excited today because we have a New York Film Academy instructor and documentarian, Heather Matthews, in the studio. She's here to talk to us about her latest film project, Forbidden, Gay and Undocumented in Rural America, which will be showing on Logo coming up in like the next week. August 3rd. August 3rd. So a little bit longer, but close. Very exciting. Yeah. Um, and actually, we have the trailer, hopefully. Yeah. Let's check that out. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. We're going to win at the border. We're going to build the wall. The wall will be built. enchanted by Lady Liberty. You know, I was enchanted by the story of America. Because I would always ask my teacher when I was eight or nine years old, I was like, teacher, what does Lady Liberty have on her notebook? Because that's, that's what I thought it was. You know, what is, what is written on her notebook? And my teacher told me, she said, it was give me thy weak, give me thy poor, give me thy huddled masses yearning for freedom. And I knew, I knew that Lady Liberty was talking about my family and about my community. I just knew that in my heart. So I felt welcomed and I felt special. My name is Moisés Serrano. My name is Moisés Serrano. So my name is Moisés Serrano. And I'm queer, and I'm undocumented, and I'm unafraid. The people united will never be defeated. I can't hear you guys. Come on. The people united will never be defeated. Si se puede. 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 What are we what are we going to do about like marriage and stuff like that? I graduated in two thousand and seven from from my high school. I got a small scholarship, graduated, you know, among the top of my class. And then I realized what undocumented really meant. The community college system at that point had barred all undocumented students from even attending a community college or public university. Right then and there, the door was shut right in my face. All of my dreams, all of my aspirations in one moment gone, shattered just like that. I was starting to face this rhetoric of, you don't belong here. Go back to where you came from. I am 24 years old now. I've lived in North Carolina for over 22 and a half years. Go back to where? Oh my gosh. What a great trailer, so first of great. all. Thanks. This is so amazing. Um, I want to start by asking the same question we always ask our guests, which is when did you first know you were in love with the movies? Probably when I was about eight years old. and they, I, li- I grew up in Virginia. I, li- I lived in Richmond, Virginia. And they were shooting an HBO film in my neighborhood. I grew up in the very urban part of Richmond. 
and they were shooting a film, an HBO film, with Mary Tyler Moore Ooh. and Jason Robards, and I would sort of stalk the set around <laughs> my neighborhood, and I was obsessed with um, the procedure and the OCD quality of what they were doing. I was a, I was always a very OCD child. Like, not in that I had to c- turn things on and off a thousand times, but in that I had my patterns and my... And I, I liked things a certain way. Mm. And I was just... I was very compelled by the set. I would watch... I, I wasn't... I didn't care that much about the actors. I cared much more about the behind the scenes, like what all the people there were working and what they were doing and, like, the, ca- the, the exacting nature of the camera team and stuff like that. So that was my first exposure to, like, what goes on behind the scenes is far more interesting than what's happening in front of the camera or on the stage. Like, I was into behind-the-scenes on stage, too. So how did you get started in making movies? I I got internships in college. Um, I went to college right outside of Manhattan, and first I got an internship at MTV on a fashion show that that they had at the time, and that's when I discovered editing. And um, then later, when I was a senior in college, I got an internship at a film production company that was the New York office of Paula Weinstein's L.A. office. Wow. And I can't remember the name of the production company, but she, I was like, she was a very, one of the first powerful women producers in Hollywood. Yeah. And that was, like, really exciting to me. And I had the opportunity for a job there in Los Angeles when I graduated, but at the same time, I, like, met the guy I was going to marry, and he wanted to stay in New York, and I was like, fine. I thought there would be jobs in New York, but I had a hard time finding a, finding a New York film job. Um, so then I got another job and did that until I was sick of it, and then eventually convinced my husband to move to Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> we have to go where the work is. That yeah, is how exactly. I also ended up out here. Yeah. Um, so tell us, what, what work were you doing for Paula as you're getting started? I was, doing, I was working in their development office, and back then when there was a lot more money in the industry, a lot of film, Los Angeles film production companies had offices in New York to cover the literary scene because mm. they were, would be reading books and determining whether to buy them to turn them into movies. So we were doing a lot of what's called development, which is finding new material, working on scripts of, of, that the production companies already own, working with screenwriters to make scripts better. So then when I moved to LA, I got a job, got jobs basically in as a, as assistants but in the development in the development area because that's where my experience had been. When mm-hmm. you're reading scripts and writing notes or reading scripts and writing coverage, which is like a book report on a screenplay <laughs> or a book to determine whether it is it's the type of story you could turn into a movie that has potential to be right. a movie. And their coverage exists like all over town. Like part of being an, a young executive in in LA is like having all your contacts at all these different production companies, so you can swap coverage with them to make <laughs> sure that you weren't wrong in your assessment of a book or a screenplay. So there was a lot of years of that, and being an assistant to directors or or producers, working on sets, working in offices, like executive assistant kinds of things. And then I worked as a production. Cor- I worked for a while for David Fincher's special projects division at oh, Anonymous wow. in like 2000, 2000, 2000. And we did a short. We did a 
groundbreaking project. We didn't know it was groundbreaking at the time. I'm sure David Fincher did because he sees the future. Yeah. <laughs> Special power. We did this project of, sh- we did this series of short films for the internet for BMW where each film was directed by like John Frankenheimer. Ooh, Guy Ritchie. Guy Ritchie did one. Wong Kar Wai wow. did one. John Frankenheimer did one. And I got to I work on I love those. Did you see yes. that? Yes. Oh, wow. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Hilarious. I've not seen Madonna, these. where she, like, falls yeah. outside. She, I love like, that. You know, threw her around uh-huh. the car for that. Oh, that's yeah. so funny. So I got to work with those directors and the ad agency, and he brought in one of his favorite screenwriters to write some of them. And that was an amazing experience. Oh. And then 9-11 happened, and Anonymous had to um, let go of a lot of staff, and so I got let go then. And then, But then... Tony Scott's company, RSA, RSA, did the second series of BMW films, so I got hired by RSA to work on the second series where it was like John Woo, and um, now I can't remember who else was it, Carnahan, um, that one was, I was doing more like office stuff and mm-hmm. less like working with the talent on that, except that I was like in charge of Clive Owen. Wow. Oh, not a bad day at the office. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. So tell us about your transition into documentary filmmaking. Well, I had, after, I went back to grad school in 2007 for film editing, and so I've been editing since 2009, mostly narrative, but I did a little bit of doc stuff and really liked it because you get to like find the story and the material, so yeah. I was really into it. But the docu- but editing turning into a documentary filmmaker happened really by luck, where one of my oldest friends from high school, Tiffany Reinard, who's the director of this film, we went to high school together, and we hadn't talked in a while, and she called me up when she was going to Sarah Lawrence to do the very last shooting for the what she thought was the very last bit of shooting for this film, mm-hmm. and that's where I went to college, that's where Moises ends up going to college. And she called me up and she's like, you're not going to believe this. I, I'm going to Sarah Lawrence and da-da-da-da-da. And um, I thought of you because she visited me there all the time. And I was like, wait, what are you working on? And she tells me everything. Because she had made a small documentary before that. She and her sister. And I had helped as much as I could. Like she would, It was back in the days when she would have to send me a DVD. And then yeah. I would give her notes and send it back. Um, or email them back. Mm-hmm. But um, I tried to help as much as possible. And so we had, like, two conversations over a couple months about it. The second conversation we had, I was like, who's going to edit it? And she was like, well, I guess I will. I was like, can, can I do it? <laughs> like, I wasn't doing anything at the time. It was before I was teaching. And it just seemed like I didn't know about... I felt like a fairly um, knowledgeable person about social justice issues and was doing uh, some social justice work as much as like Mm -hmm. a lay person can I mean I was marching and holding you know doing what I could um you know as a white privileged woman um and I didn't know anything about the undocumented story I had no idea you know I just knew that like we weren't supposed to call them illegal aliens I knew not I knew that was wrong Mm -hmm. but I knew nothing and so I felt like, here's an opportunity to do something to give a voice to this population. So I took it on, and we didn't know what it was. You know, she sent, she was had been working with another friend of hers from high school, shooting Moises for two years. They've been shooting for two years. Starting two when? Years. Starting in 2012. Okay. Starting in late 2012. And you guys wind up wrapping 
we wrapped the last thing we shot was in 2000 like March of 2016 wow okay yeah yeah, because he gets into Sarah Lawrence, what, 2014? Yeah. And then... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But we had to go back and get some more interviews. Like, we we showed a rough cut to his family and locals in Yadkinville um, in late 2015. And the family hadn't... His family didn't really take it seriously. They were like, okay, whatever you're doing, boys, <laughs> that's fine, but we don't want the camera around. Mm-hmm. Like, we barely got an interview from Victoria. And then they saw the film, and they were like, oh, this is real. This is actually doing something. So then we got an interview from his sister, and then we, you know, we got more. Oh, cool. Their family got more involved. Wow. They saw there was actually something powerful yeah. happening there. So I want to talk about you. You joined the project after the short. She's, she's shooting a little bit. Um, and then how long are you on the project for? I've been on the project since October of 2014. And were you out there shooting with them? or were you sh- I, I wasn't out there. Like I, Tiffany is, was based in Florida. And um, I, she, so she was, had easier access to everything on the East Coast. Sure. So she, I would say like we would realize that we would need a, another interview with Aunt, with. Addie Jeffrey, for instance, we needed some expert opinion, some expert talking about certain topics. So then Tiffany would go to North Carolina and get an interview. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't going out on interviews. Tiffany is incredibly gifted at interviews. Like I'm not. She at listening to her interview somebody, her follow up questions. Like she would always go over with me like the, her main questions, but then I would listen to the interviews, even the mm-hmm. ones before my time. Like. Her, the question would spawn these new questions that she would ask that were mo- incredible wow. that she thought of those to ask. Like she is truly gifted as an interviewer. I always feel like it must be very overwhelming to be an editor, or at least uh, for me it would be, to receive all of this really great information and, and then choosing not only which parts are, are vital to the story, but to the person. Because I know a lot of documentarians, like I, I owe so much to... My subject, I'm telling their yeah. story. Oh you think that God. distance helped you to achieve I think, that? For me, absolutely. Like even when I edit narrative, like I don't go to set, I don't know the actors, I don't want to meet anybody because <laughs> anything can tarnish your your idea of of the film or of the characters. Like if I meet an actor and they're like bitchy, you're like I'm cutting cha- you that out. Can change everything. <laughs> yeah, you know. Or if they're really nice, like that can change everything. Sure. Or if I watch the director, like work all day on one complicated shot mm. then that could make me like beholden to that shot in the editing room where if it doesn't work and I didn't see that they spent all day on it then I can be like that doesn't work you know right and the same thing with going on interviews you know if I if I see like the banter that goes back and forth and I mean I see a lot on the on the video but like they sent me a drive there was 250 to 300 hours on that Jeez. If I saw all the work that they put into that, I would never be able to get rid of material. Yeah. Our first cut was four and a half hours. Wow. My goodness. <laughs> so are, are you going based off of notes? I'm curious as to what, what the working with the director to find the story is like. Well, we first, um, at first they, they said to me, see what you can find. We don't know if there's a short film here, if there's a series okay. here, if there's a feature here. 
And so I started reviewing. The first thing I had to do, they gave me everything, and they were like, we need to cut a trailer. We need to cut, like, a six-minute, like, intro to the film, something we can promote. We haven't put anything, any material out about the film in a long time, mm-hmm. and we needed, they needed to raise money. So, I like, going blind, I cut, like, six, a six-minute trailer. And that, that sort of helped introduce me to a lot of the material. And then a couple of months later, I'd looked at enough material to know that we had a feature, that I didn't think we had a series. Mm-hmm. Um, but we had a lot more than a short, mm-hmm. you know, like more than a 40 minute short. We had a three arc, we had a three act structure. Um, so then I started thinking in those terms and they had written me a treatment, which I never read until after <laughs> we finished the movie, because that could, that could color, you know, I might, that could color my idea of what making the film was. Cause if I'm aiming for something, I might miss something better along the way. Right. It's the same thing when you're cutting narrative. Like, if you if you pay too much attention to the director's circle takes, there might be some little moment in another take that you're not seeing. Because you use parts of takes mm-hmm. in narrative. You don't use the whole take. You use a little bit from this one, a little bit from this one, a little bit from that one. So circle takes can be deceiving. That's, you know, that's when a director's like, I like this take, or I, you know, I, I like five and six, and... You're like, yeah, well, there's just one little glance <laughs> in one that will make this so much better. So, you know, as an editor, you're always looking for those one little looks, you know, those one little moment that can really sell authenticity. Right. Sell so. authenticity. That's really <laughs> gross. But also an accurate description of, of what's going on. And I think, uh, especially in documentary, when you don't, have retakes and, and reshoots, you know, yeah. really, and sometimes you can do little pickups of, like, walk through the door again, but but yeah. those authentic moments have to be captured, and I, I thought you did such an amazing job with one moment, in particular, when um, Doma is repealed, um, and there's this shot that is forever long as he's... In the bathroom. Um, yeah, as he's processing this information, Moises, um, and I, in watching it, I was like, this feels like it's forever, but it's just waiting for this moment for when he breaks. And I was like, yeah. oh, I get yeah. it. There's this flood of emotion. And, and yeah. you really are connecting with him in, in the weight of this moment. Yeah. I think even more so than maybe just in reading it or having lived through the experience yeah. of the repeal. Living it through him feels mm-hmm. so um, grounded in and much more real. Because Very you understand real. kind yeah. of how it changes his life in that yeah. moment. Um, what I'm curious, like, in these moments, like, is it is it a tough call? Or was that like... Is it, is it obvious or, or... No, it's not obvious. It's instinct. It's my... say I get goosebumps when I talk about things yeah. like that. Like, it's all instinct. And it's all... It's all um, my own emotional reaction to the first time I looked at that footage. Like, I have to memorize... Like, I have to memorize my reaction to the first time I looked at that footage. Like, the first time I looked at him getting into college. Yeah. When yeah. he reads that email. Like, I have to remember how I responded the first time and try to cut to that accordingly you know and then you hope that people have a genuine like I know that's painful for a lot of people to watch like straight people aren't going to be like this is boring (laughs) you know a lot of straight people there are some that are like can genuinely get on board with with his emotional reaction Mm -hmm. to that Um, but to me like not every time I watch the movie but still when I watch the movie with an audience I still have a genuine reaction to that moment where there, there is this tension being built, but there is a genuine release when he exhales. 
Yeah. You, know, you can really feel that, like, this is a true moment of, of like, something he's been waiting. You know, he knew this decision was going to happen today, and, like, he's been waiting, and he just, it, he finally felt it in that moment. Yeah, was he given, obviously, a camera and, and yeah. just told, hey, record whatever you yeah. think are pivotal moments or in your life? Or just record whatever you want. Anything. I have tons of footage of he and wow. Brandon, like, doing face masks. And stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you know, which we used, like, originally we had more fun moments of them in the in the cut, but, like, you have to cut for time. Mm. And, sure. You know, we tried to have have some of of their, like, cute stuff in the movie. Yeah, he did a great job because it's, it's so close. So you really mm-hmm. could see his facial expression and his yeah. eyes when he's reading that email. It was great. Yeah. It was wonderful. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, what do you think you bring to editing that makes it kind of your own? I feel, for me, in, in exploring the different kind of art crafts of filmmaking, editing always felt... Uh, the most impersonal, but the more I talk to editors, the more they're like, my thumbprints are everywhere. Yeah, I think that one of the things that drew me to editing, beyond my, like, I learned to edit in college on a Steenbeck, the old oh, wow, yeah. things. I've always been attracted to editing. Um, I think it's the, like I was saying before, like, I think it's the OCD nature of it. Like, you have to be incredibly organized and think in an organized fashion. Um, while my apartment is a disaster, like my desk area and my office area is really neat. Um, but I, but I think that once I learned the craft, I think that I have a, I think I have a really good ability. What got me to go to grad school for it is I think I have a a strong ability to identify authentic moments. Mm -hmm. Like even with people, like I can tell right away if somebody's bullshitting me. Like, even when they're very good at it. Like, that's why I couldn't take working in Hollywood. Like, I had to move <laughs> to outside the business. And I tried to, like, quit Hollywood and stuff. Because I used to work, like, really in inside, yeah. you know, with regular, like, producers and directors and, like, inside the business. And I was like, uh-uh. Wow. No way, no more. Because it's just such bull. It's wow. just total bull. All of it is like... That is just so refreshing to hear. Especially because I think a lot of people think that if you're not working in Hollywood, you're not working, period. It's total, which is it's crazy. totally wrong. Like, yeah. I went to Outfest last year, which is the biggest LGBT fest in the country, and every single film is made by an independent filmmaker yeah. who is working in the business, getting the films they want to make made and playing at festivals and all the big films that were at Outfest were at Sundance, were mm-hmm. at Tribeca. It's not right. like they're it's happening in a ghetto. It's happening in the real world. These are in the inside the film in, the indie world <laughs> and they're all making their work. It's just we're not participating in this studio system where everybody has to like be, you know, wink wink, uh. you know, and it's just I can't Yeah. Like, I just couldn't do it anymore. Good for you. Yeah. Um, speaking of authentic moments, how does this, the opening, the intro for this, which you guys kind of get a sense of it in the trailer of it's the the Trump rally um, and this kind of terrifying repeat of history almost and in, in using the, the blackout over it. And so it's just the voices at first and then everything comes into full view and you're like, this is, it's scary. <laughs> We, it wasn't until Tiffany came out to picture lock the movie. Mm-hmm. We had, we, we picture locked just in time to, we found out we got into Outfest. And so the film was due on a certain date. So we had to 
hurry up and picture lock and color correct and sound mix and stuff in time. And so Tiffany came out from Florida to picture lock the movie. And I, right before she got there, I had lunch with a friend of ours, David Michael Barrett, who's a filmmaker, a really good queer filmmaker. And he, we had met him early on when we screened a rough cut of the festi- of the film at a festival in Winston, North Carolina, Salem, Winston Salem, North Carolina, and we met him there. He had a film of his there, Kiss Me, Kill Me, that is fabulous. Mm. It's a, it's like a new film noir for ga- for gay people. Ooh. It's like a West Hollywood film noir, oh Kiss Me, gosh. Kill Me. It's on Amazon Prime. I'm gonna check it out. It's a good film, <laughs> so good. I mean, it is like film noir, like up. Fantastic, like Hollywood confection. Yes, okay. but with fancy gay people. Um, it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and he, I had lunch with him just to sort of like catch up and stuff um, to see. And he was going to help us raise some money so we could afford to finish the film. And he was like, "What I don't understand." He sat me down. And he was just like, "What I don't understand is why you don't have Trump in this film." Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, we've just been sort of like, we wanted to stay out of the fray, and like, it's so ugly, and da-da-da-da-da. And he he just had like a real heart-to-heart to me about what would happen if we did have Trump in the film. And I frankly had never really considered it, because mm-hmm. we, ne- we don't have any negative, negative stuff in the film. We were trying to stay totally positive. Mm-hmm. And then that was sort of swimming around my head. And it, I think it was that day or the next day that I picked Tiffany up from the airport. And um, I remember, like, driving in the express lane up the 110 and, tell, and saying this to Tiffany. And she was like, you know, I've been thinking about that, too. And so we sort of started thinking about, like, in what way would it work? And then we were like, only if we can't see his face. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. It resonates. It hits really hard. I was watching it in my living room. My roommate walked in and she's like, what is is even happening? (laughs) I was like, sit down. It's going to be a great ride. Uh, (laughs) And we thought, like, in the beginning, if we can, like, talk back to him, if we can rebuke him, and having that protest right in the front, having that rabbi saying the exact opposite of what Trump is saying, Mm -hmm. having that clapping and cheering, like, blending into each other, so it's, like, a direct response, like a direct F you, that that's, we could make it work that way. So you talked a little bit about watching this film with an audience. Oh, my God. What What is that experience like? Well, the first time, Tiffany had seen it with an audience a couple times screening early early cuts in Yadkinville and somewhere else she had the first time I saw it in an audience was in Winston-Salem I went to that for to screen a rough cut at this film festival in Winston-Salem and I was so nervous I was freaking out because I'd never seen I'd only screened it to like some editor friends of mine when it was in really you know early stage and my my then boyfriend who like right before I left to screen at Winston-Salem he was like You've got a movie. And knowing him, I was like, oh, my God, I do have a movie. Oh, my God. But still, like, I was going out of my mind. And my mom came to the screening. You know? And so I was, like, really nervous. And um, it was amazing. It was amazing. Because you see the movie entirely differently when you see it with a big audience. All of a sudden, all kinds of things will jump out at you. You know, I was like... Okay, that needs to be fixed, and that transition needs to be fixed. Like, all these notes during the... Because things just jump out at you differently when you see it with an audience. Mm -hmm. I don't know what every filmmaker will tell you that. The first time you see it with an audience, you see it entirely differently. And you can 
feel the audience breathing and responding to things, you know. But um, when, like, people were crying at the spots that, like, I didn't realize people would cry. I know there were touching moments, but I had no idea. Like, I'm not a big movie crier unless it's, like, The Notebook. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm just just cheap, like, cheap, Yeah, you know? But I'm not a big, like, it's hard to pull me emotionally in a movie. Um, But people, and people laughed, like... We knew, we thought it was funny, but like I, I don't necessarily laugh out loud when I'm by myself. And most of the time, I saw the movie mm-hmm. as by myself or with very few, very critical people who were not who were responding as they would like studying a movie. <laughs> and so to get to hear people laugh and to see that like the person sitting like across from me, I saw her like wipe tears away. Aww. Like I couldn't believe it. And so then we got up and we were asking questions of the audience to make sure certain information was tracking and stuff. And they were like, uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. They had no notes for us. I mean, we had notes. We saw things that needed to be changed, but they were all positive. And we just, we couldn't believe it. We were like so much further ahead of the game than we thought we were. Amazing. Were you ever tempted to go, I don't want to say negative with it, but I think... When dealing with such a heavy subject, it's got to be hard to always be looking on the brighter side, especially as your subject who you guys are interacting with or, or reviewing for years at a time is really struggling to, to try to get his message out, to just be heard, to just be yeah. seen. I mean, talking to, um, was it the governor or the senator? Oh, man. the he talked The woman that he talked to. That was oh, so... Virginia Fox. The set, she's a representative. <sighs> Thank she's you. She's a congressman. She was so infuriating. Oh, wasn't she awful? Just, just to not be heard. Like, it, yeah. it's one thing to say, like, I, I disagree with you. It's another to, to be like... wipe you off. Yeah, no, we get it, but it's not a big deal. Okay. Yeah. And to give Lynn a little context, he's, he's saying, uh, you know, the immigration policies that we have in place currently, in order to for a child who was brought here by their parent at a young age to stay they have to go back to their country of origin which they might not have any family left or or any mm-hmm. connection or even speak the language and then wait 10 years to try and come back in which, which takes another 20 years exactly and she's like well it's hard but it's not undoable it's like yeah you can't just sidestep a whole conversation yeah. so yeah. were you ever tempted to you know maybe go a little darker with it um we were, and our response to that was to air as much factual information, was to show as much factual information, like, to essentially put in there twice, you know, that, like, this is what, ha- this is, this is the real story of trying to do it legally. Yeah. That even if you are sitting in Mexico and you want to come to this country, it takes 20 years to process your application. And that's just to process your application. If you're from Mexico, if you're from England or a Western European country, mm-hmm. it takes five years because you're white and you're European. It's less if you're oh, British oh, because man. we love the Brits. <laughs> right. We do anything for the Brits. <laughs> but if you're brown or black, yeah. you're in trouble unless you're a refugee. Yeah, and even then, just so many checkpoints have to go through, and yeah, I mean, it is ridiculous what you have to go. The processes, and we met, we met a man. Tiffany met a man um, at a conference in Florida that Moises spoke at, who was British, who came here, stayed over his visa, so he was undocumented, and he was living in like rural Pennsylvania, and he found an immigration office that just gave him citizenship. Wow. What? 
How? Okay. okay. Like he went in one day to like do something, and they just handed him a work permit. Oh. Like, and he, we have the whole interview. He explained the whole process. Like one time, he had to fly to Florida like that afternoon or something, but it was like no problem. Like that was as much as he was inconvenienced. What? I don't even understand anything anymore. My, my fountain core of my foundation is a little rocked here. Yeah. Um, I guess once you completed the film, you found the story, you guys have shown it to audiences. Is there follow-up with your subject Moises after that? Is there a oh, conversation? Ta- I mean, or? I was texting with him outside <laughs> because we came here right before Outfest last year and did... Um, um, Black Hollywood. Yeah. With um oh he I would look at my phone. He told me the name of the um the Moises remembers the name of our host, but yeah. I couldn't remember him. We did a show, we did a podcast or or a streaming show. We were on camera. Uh-huh. Very cool. But it was awesome. So we were just here. Oh. So I was just texting with Moises about that. That's wonderful. That's awesome. oh, I'm going to yeah. get you back here for uh, LGBTQ and A. Oh, yeah. Um, the next time he comes great. out. Yeah, totally. You. But like, and Moises, Tiffany and Moises are like BFF. They talk all the time. This like, is so sweet. Moises and I are not as close as Tiffany and Moises. I mean, they have, of course, like developed an incredibly close relationship. Yeah, and I'm Tiffany's sure. like really close with his family. But when we did the screening in Charlotte a couple months ago, his whole family came to the screening. We all went out to lunch afterwards. Aww. Like, like his family's amazing. His mom seems really sweet. She's incredible. Yeah. Oh my gosh, She's his sisters are so strong yeah. and incredible. Yeah. Um, just hearing the story of driving around and, and how terrifying just getting in your vehicle um, can be. It, oh my god! Just it's like one empowering story. I don't even want to say empowering. Just one harrowing story yeah. after another of of what people are doing just to try to live their best possible yeah. lives. You she know, said, she's at the grocery store and doesn't know if like a cop's gonna come. And, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean that's every day that's they crazy. deal with checkpoints. They have a whole the the whole undocumented community in their town and in every town around that ha- that deals with this. There are checkpoints every day, right. so they have a text message ring, text message circle. That to they, warn to warn each other where the checkpoint is, wow. so they can drive around it, and because wow. every day, so that they can pick their kids up from school and go to grocery, go to the wow. groceries. Do you think you've changed it all as a filmmaker after yeah. completing this film? How so? Yeah, because bef- before I was more interested in narrative, um, more attuned to narrative editing, um, more attuned to performance, mm. and now like. Now I'm 100% documentary, 100% social justice. You know, like, I'll edit a narrative if the job comes up. But I'm, like, Tiffany and I are, are already working on our next documentary. Yes, I want to hear that. about it. Yeah, yes. it's like, now I'm, like, all the way. Like, I only want to work in the documentary department in NIFA, where I used to work in the filmmaking department, too. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Edit, you know, teach editing in the filmmaking department yeah. um, or post-production. And now it's, like, all my focuses go towards documentary. Can you talk at all about your next project? Sure. I can say a little bit about it. Yeah, um, But we, we're making a documentary about um, the <laughs> capital punishment, <laughs> the death penalty, and, yeah. and um, the moral issues involved. And um, which, w- w- one of the main things we want to do is talk to families of victims themselves who oppose the death penalty, 
like are you familiar with the Dylan Roof case, the gentleman, yeah. the guy in South Carolina? Mm-hmm. All of those families who were affected, all the victims' families, opposed the death penalty. Mm-hmm. And both the state case and the federal case are seeking the death penalty. He already got the death penalty in the state case, but the federal case is also seeking the death penalty. And the same thing with the Oklahoma City bombing. There were so many of the families that opposed the death penalty, but they still went after it. And there um, there was a study done about these 16 counties around the country, Los Angeles being one of them, that go after the death penal- penalty exponentially more than everywhere else in the country. Wow. Where, per capita, where it's just outer limits, how much more it goes after it goes after the death penalty. These sort of like vengeful prosecutors. So we're looking at it um, sort of from a perspective of what is the why are these people going after the death penalty so much? Like, is mm-hmm. this is it more vengeance or justice? Yeah, and morally, you know, like. Does, does the state really have the right to kill? Like, uh, Fascinating. You know. Yeah. Which means you have to talk about everything to do with the death penalty. Sure. But, but we... Um, but um, there's an incredible book by Brian Stevenson, um, which the name escapes me right now, but he does a lot of work around the death penalty. Um, mercy. Just Mercy, it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, which is really good. And um, I just, I read this article about these families that oppose the death penalty, that it doesn't provide closure. Like, so many arguments for the death penalty are, it's a deterrence, which has been proven that it is not. Super not true. And we don't, that's not even getting into the racism mm-hmm. around the death penalty and around the prison system in general. Mm-hmm. And that um, the families get closure when the, when the, when the perpetrator is put to death, which I've heard over and over from families, that's not I where do. they get closure. Sure, uh, you know. So I'm still waiting to hear what the what the reason what the reason is yeah. that, they, that they have to use it. Where are you guys in the process right now? We just ha- we just got together for a week and with another woman who's helping us, who has some really strong connections to lawyers. I like and these all women work. teams. Yeah, yes. totally. We do Amazing. too. <laughs> um, and we just got together and started, like, the jumping off point. So we're just beginning our research, really. Okay, great. Um, and this is one that'll take, like, lots of years. Yeah. I want to ask you one question, final question before we get out of here. Um, the state of documentary right now is in a really interesting place. We're seeing a lot of people involved in narrative moving to documentary. Ava DuVernay just this morning announced that she's going to do a five-part series on the Central Park Five, which is... yeah terrifying and awesome because 13th was so 13th. moving and um it was very inspirational in wanting to make the death penalty doc the 13th yes. and wanting to take that a step further that's yeah. amazing so i guess my question is what advice do you have to people students uh just trying to get into documentary pick a subject that you feel passionate about really passionate about because that will always keep you going because when I mean, we paid for Forbidden with our own money. We raised a little money through um, um, those the Kickstarter, two, Kickstarter, and the other one, Indiegogo. Indiegogo, yeah. We raised a little money, but nothing like what we needed to raise. Most mm-hmm. of it was just paid for ourselves. We paid for ourselves, or Tiffany paid for herself, mm-hmm. um, and and I did too. But um, 
if you care that much about your subject, you're willing to do that. And you'll fight every step of the way and you'll find the best people to help you tell that story if you care that much about your story. And you won't give up. You'll, it'll take you years to do it, but eventually you'll get there. And if you put your heart and soul in it, like we, the reason that we are where we are today, like about to release it on Logo, is that Lucy Mukherjee Brown at Outfest saw a rough cut. We submitted a rough cut to Outfest, which we didn't know you weren't supposed to do. That only like <laughs> Miramax and Paramount Classics submit rough cuts to festivals. I love we this. were just like, mm-hmm, okay. <laughs> and she saw the rough cut and was like, this is going to be good. Wow. And so we finished the film for her and she premiered it. They premiered it at Outfest. And just because it was in Outfest, it... All these other festivals programmed it just because it was an Outfest. And then that got enough talk around it that all these universities and campuses wanted to screen it because it was about intersectional lives, which is what's really being spoken about now. Mm -hmm. And so it's all because of Lucy and because of this um, society, the Charlotte Charlotte Queer Gay Film Society in Charlotte, North Carolina. Like they were an early, early... They got the Southern Poverty Law Center involved, which they gave wow. us a social justice award. Wow. But really, Lucy, like, we owe so much to her. Incredible. So yeah. exciting. This is an incredible story, an incredible documentary. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can watch it Logo August 3rd. Yeah, at 9 o'clock. At 9 o'clock. You're definitely going to want to check out this documentary. Uh, j- just one last little t- thing. Uh, um, in watching it, the shots of the diners... When he's talking about just um, the white people French fry montage, I grew up in an all white community in the Midwest, and oh. I was like, "This is freakishly accurate um, in in tone." And it, I feel like that hasn't really been uh, explored in a documentary that I've seen before. And I, I was really yeah. moved just by these diner oh, scenes and his voiceover. I, I thought it was a, a stunning selection of, of yeah. shots and voiceover. Oh, good! It's really it's really wonderful. I can't recommend yeah. you guys watch it Great. enough. Um, Heather Matthews, thank you so much for joining oh, us today. God, we really so appreciate having you. Guys, we'll be back here next week at 4 o'clock with another great guest to talk more film stuff. Um, If you guys have questions, as always, please hit us below. Um, Five stars. Rate us if you're listening on iTunes. We love hearing from you guys. Um, Until next week, I've been Joelle. And I'm Pega. We'll see you guys around. (laughs) Bye-bye. From producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, We would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit PopcornTalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners or principals.